Hey there. Welcome to the Living Room Disciple Podcast. I'm Eric Church. Nope, not the country music star. I get to do something way cooler. I'm the one that's making the Living Room Disciple show up in your podcast applications, YouTube, and social feeds. We're taking the entire month of January off to enjoy some rest and time off with our families. So, we're resharing some of our favorite episodes from last year. And the episode you're about to hear was originally titled Artificial Intelligence and Tech, featuring Jay Kim. But I like to refer to it as the one about ChatGPT. Seriously, this was absolutely one of my favorite episodes. I gravitate towards everything technology, and I've personally found this conversation to be a really helpful way to approach topics like AI. Jay Kim is a wonderful pastor out of Silicon Valley in California. He's written some incredible books. In fact, not only is he the guest on this re-released episode, but he wrote Analog Christian. And I highly recommend that you check that out. It's a really good book. And I'm prayerful that you'll find this conversation and episode as much of a blessing to you as it was to me. So without further ado, welcome to the Living Room Disciple Podcast, where discipleship finds a home. Pastor Jay, I am incredibly excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, you have recently written a book uh, that's pretty powerful, um, Analog Christian, which is kind of like the follow-up to Analog Church. How you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm really, really honored to be on with you, Phil. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. We're going to dive in in a moment to artificial intelligence and AI and, and all the things that um, maybe keep me up at night. And uh, <laughs> before we do, um, one of the reasons that I... I've been wanting to have this conversation, but I've kind of been waiting um, to have it with you, to be honest, is because when I was reading uh, Analog Church, or more specifically when I was listening to the audiobook, it struck me the wisdom and nuance that you brought to the conversation. Would you give us just like a very brief synopsis of, of Analog Church and kind of what maybe like the really high level takeaways? Yeah, sure. Um, Analog Church is a book that I uh, released in 2020, March of 2020. We were just talking about this before we mm -hmm. record. The book came out the like two weeks after we all went on lockdown, which was ironic uh, because yeah. it's a book that essentially the subtitle of the book is Why We Need Real People, Places and Things in the Digital mm -hmm. Age. So we released a book uh, arguing for the importance of um, an embodied ecclesiology, essentially a mm -hmm. church that shows up and is truly in the flesh incarnationally with one another. And we released the book <laughs> right at that moment in our history when we couldn't do that. And uh, that was yeah. interesting. Uh, but in hindsight, I, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that we released the book when we did. Um, so, yeah, essentially Analog Church is just a book that tries to live at the intersection between our ecclesiology, you know, what we think mm -hmm. uh, we mean when we say the church, what it means to be the church, God's sort of intention and design for the church, and the digital age and all of the various ways in which our digital proclivity, proclivities and even addictions mm -hmm. maybe are, yeah. um, you know, forming us and shaping us and changing us. Uh, for good and for bad. And um, really just the hope is that the book is a, is a call and an invitation for church leaders specifically, but for everyone to think deeply and theologically and robustly and thoughtfully about 
uh, how the tools we are leveraging might actually be forming us and even unforming or deforming uh, mm. what we think the church is or isn't. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot more to be said about that, but that's what the book's about. Well, and, and well, I'm really glad uh, that, you, that you said that, though, especially because one of the things that's interesting is you didn't have like a chuck it all type of mentality. And yeah. that's honestly, that's where I'm at. Like, I'm I'm like, I'm I'm ready to go Amish. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like I just have these times and, you know, I'm I, where I, I reflect on social media and technology. In fact, I was just talking to someone uh, about the fact that I was getting the chance to interview you and. Uh, and the fact that like I'm, I struggle with technology in the church and their first reaction was what about all the good that has mm. come from, um, the, the intersection of technology and the church. Yeah. And my reaction is to think about all the bad and it's this yeah. really nuanced, uh, it, it's just not easy. You know, yeah. I think that's like the big thing is, is there's not like a, a one size fits all solution. There's not like an easy. And so I, one of the things your book I think did for me was give me a framework. Hmm. Uh, but your book was written right before the pandemic. And it was also written prior to the rise of artificial intelligence at the scale yeah. that we've seen really in, ironically, I think since like March of this year, we've, I think is when, um, or right around then is when chat GPT kind of mm -hmm. hits the internet, um, sweeps through the news. And then immediately after that, you see the rise of other types of AI, you know, uh, generative software, right. Um, yeah. things for, uh, AI, uh, audio, AI, you know, pictures and videos. And so kind of takes the whole deep fake idea to a whole nother level. Yeah. And then I think two weeks ago, uh, I read an article about a church in Europe that essentially navigated an entire Anglican service utilizing AI. So they kind of like told ChatGPT what they wanted it to do. It gave them a whole scripting and they took that script and they plugged it into, you know, one of these AI video face generator type things. Mm. And then they just put it on a screen and led an entire church service. Mm. Um, outside of their normal times, like they did like a special thing that, you know, they didn't bamboozle their congregation yeah. with it. But I'm sitting here and this is really my big question for you. I'm sitting here, you know, over here in, in like my relatively anti-technology kind of mind. And I'm like, I think all this stuff's from Satan. <laughs> like, this seems, this seems yeah. bad. I'm pretty sure the devil's in this. And I'm ready to chuck all AI. Yeah. I'm ready to put a big tag on the living room disciple that says, you know, no AI ever. And I have a distinct feeling um, I'm jumping off the deep end. On, on so, so I guess my question for you is, do you see artificial intelligence and the rise of this type of technology as something that's going to be a net negative for the church to the best of your understanding today? Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I think it's a complex question. And the first thought that comes to mind is that um, on one hand, I think it's it's the question is early because I mm -hmm. think artificial intelligence is early. So, um, you know, when we talk about AI, which we're talking about a lot these days, like you yeah. said, because of the introduction of ChatGPT, which then sort of opened the floodgates, you know, and created... Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about how fast it happened, you know, like yeah, nobody was, was talking. No one was talking about AI, really, you know, except like mm -hmm. real tech nerds. Uh, and then ChatGPT 
And then now it's like every week there's a new generative AI mm-hmm. platform coming out. Um, big tech companies that are introducing, you know, AI. There was a lot written about, um, mm-hmm. you know, Apple's sort of WWDC presentation where they introduced like the Vision Pro and all these new products yep. and how intentional Apple was about not using those words, artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. But if you read between the lines, all it's there. essentially what it is, right? Yeah. It's all there. So, uh, which I thought was fascinating because Apple is, you know, in part, they are as successful as they are because they are so intentional about every detail, including mm-hmm. certainly the language. Mm-hmm they use, you know, in the words they use, which I think speaks to uh, an awareness, you know, on their part that um, we are very early. So to just use a phrase like artificial intelligence as sort of like common language, like, oh, you know, AI, everyone does it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very telling that a company like Apple would refrain from that and say, well, we're Mm -hmm. going to use language that feels a little more palpable, tangible, universal. I think there's Mm -hmm. still a sort of um, there is at the same time this sort of gravitational pull toward all things AI and, you know, my friends coming up with their weekly grocery shopping list at Trader Joe's using ChatGPT, you yeah. know, and creating yeah. a menu and a shopping list and all that kind of stuff. These sort of, uh, you know, benign usages. Give me a but, recipe. That yeah, kind of thing. exactly. Yeah, you know, which is, you know, fine, I guess. But you dig beneath the surface. I mean, it's, it's the same way we were talking about or thinking about social media, you know, mm-hmm. when, you know, MySpace or Friendster and then uh, yeah. face, Facebook opened up and so on and so forth. It was mostly just, oh, what a cool way to connect with my eighth grade buddy who I haven't seen in 12 years, you know? Yeah. That was the language and it's sort of what's happening now. Yep. Oh, what a cool way. I can just ask it to give me a recipe for broccoli beef or whatever you know this is what concerns me i feel like we've all walked this road like we we know like there's better questions to ask you know i watched uh, 60 minutes uh where they were interviewing uh you know google and all the heads and stuff and it's this whole episode you know where it's a pretty in-depth journalistic they never ask the question do we understand or have any inkling of the impact that ai will have on mental health yeah yeah. You know, where all of a sudden, you know, what, what, wh- how do you feel as a person when you go weeks and all of your creative content was generated? Right. I, I feel like it's an interesting question before we yeah. start using it to, you know, make sermons or blog posts or whatever it is. And these are the things that are concerning me, especially because I'm wondering, you know, I'm, I'm already talking to pastors and, and really, you know, ministry leaders who are excited to, to do good work, right? To get the gospel out there, to have the best sermons, have the best songs, have the best, all the things, because their heart really is to glorify God through excellence and through getting the message out there, I think, which is really well-intentioned. And already wondering, and, and these ministry leaders thinking about, um, you know, AI, it, I, I think you're right to say it's too early to know if it's going to be net positive. Is it too early for the church to get involved in AI? Yeah, you know, I I do have strong feelings about the speed and expediency with which um, the church leans into any technology and especially technologies in the in the digital age. I've been pretty public about this, that I think that um, it is wise and prudent for Mm -hmm. the church to go slow. And one of the and and I've I've been in very public debates with um, people, people I admire and love and and respect, actually. But yeah. 
with whom I disagree on this on this matter. You know, I think that going too slow um, is is always the wiser path if it is posed against the other option of going too fast or going quickly. Mm-hmm. In fact, outside of just the church, outside of Christendom, you know, you think about people like Tristan Harris. Some people might know his name because he was mm-hmm. one of the main voices on that Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But for those who don't know, Tristan Harris actually used to work for Google. He was hired by Google years ago uh, and given the title of design ethicist. So his job mm. was to implement ethics, human ethics, into the design work um, yeah. that it would, you know, that Google wanted to design in such a way where they maintained a sort of ethical framework that upheld the value of both individual persons and societies of people and societal structures. Sounds like a good thing. Sounds like a great thing, but, um, and this is public, so I'm not, you know, breaking news Mm -hmm. or anything. Tristan Harris resigned and very publicly said he resigned because, and I'm not here to bash Google or big tech or anything like that, but just the story, Tristan Harris resigned because he said publicly um, that he realized Google, at the time at least, was not interested really in ethics in mm-hmm. design, or at least yeah. were not interested if in any way it would affect the bottom line. So he resigned and he started something called the um, Center for um, Humane Design. And mm-hmm. uh, he has a podcast called Your Undivided Attention. And he and his partner on that podcast have been speaking at length for a decent while now about the need to not stop um, developing AI. He, he doesn't argue for that. He actually says what we need to do is collectively um, agree to slow down the designing and mm. really the releasing, the public releasing of AI yeah. platforms because, and he makes a great point here, when... Um, when something like artificial intelligence, uh, which is such an unknown quantity at this point, and yeah. and uniquely so, because again, by its nature, it is self-learning, you know. Mm-hmm. So it it's not just humans developing software; it is humans yeah. developing software that now has the power to develop itself, uh, yeah. which runs all sorts of risks. Um, his argument is. Uh, There are ways that we can leverage AI positively that bring about Mm -hmm. a lot of good in the world, but we will sabotage that entire possibility if we thrust the technology into the competitive rat race of of Mm. tech companies because everybody is going to um, over-design and release things publicly too early before it's been tested mm-hmm. and adequately sort of um, seen through the, be the lens first of ethics. Because you got to be the first because it's the competitive rat race. Yep. And yep. that's his whole argument. So I share that. It's a long roundabout way of saying um, I think that that applies maybe even more so to mm-hmm. the local church because the local church, you know, if if we are the body of Christ and God's intention is to form people into Christ likeness by his spirit through the mechanism of the church, then we are, you know, in in sort of a, a secular way of saying it would be that the church is in the business of forming humans. 
into Christ likeness. Yeah, I like that. Not that the church does that, but that we are the platform Mm -hmm. or mechanism by which the Spirit of God does that communally. So Mm -hmm. if that is true, and if it is also true, and it is also true that one, digital technologies as a whole, but two, more specifically, artificial intelligence has the ability and and the potential to really form Mm -hmm. and even unform and deform human beings in unique ways, then for the church who is in the business of human formation, we have to be really mindful of that. We have to be thoughtful. We can't just jump in and say, here's artificial intelligence. Oh, my gosh, what a tool. It'll make us so much more efficient. It'll help us create a better product. It'll expand mm-hmm. our reach and our impact and potential. All of the you know sort of big language yeah. of venture capitalism. Um, yeah. That's a dangerous road to to travel. And, and I, I do think uh, church leaders need to pay attention, need to read and think and be in conversation, um, and at the same time go slow. Because the reality is. In anything, if you go too slow, most of the time with enough, um, you know, willpower and drive and desire and the right people on board, you can you can catch up for the most part. But if you go too fast, there's almost nothing you can do to undo the damage of having gone too fast. Um, And that's typical in most situations. So, yeah, those are just kind of my two cents uh, in, in terms of AI, I think. We see that, um, I mean, I think social media is just the easiest. It's like the most low-hanging fruit type of example, right? You yeah. know, uh, it, it gets out there. It's exactly what you described earlier. It's it's the way that I'm going to connect with my college buddies, with, you know, the people I haven't seen since elementary school. Uh, how do I how do I make sure I, you know, I, 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 I talk to Aunt Betty once a year right. other than, you know, Christmas. Well, I'll share pictures on Facebook because, you know, yeah. it, it connects us. And I think a lot of us, if we were to ask the question to church leaders or to even just individuals, do you wish life didn't have social media or if social media looked radically different? I think people would agree that they want to see a difference, but I don't think many people would want to do life without social media. And I'm right. almost concerned about why they wouldn't. But but I think we all could take a step back and say, like, my connections were deeper pre-social media. Mm. Um, you, know, you know, I lead... Bible studies and a home church and all these kind of things. I can't tell you the number of times that like I'm, we're sitting in a small group, like just a, just six, seven, eight people sitting in a circle, talking about prayer requests, and two people are on their phones. Hmm. You know what I mean? And so I think we we kind of haven't understood like there's these negative effects that we didn't know we were going to become addicted. Yeah. And I guess my I, this is a really roundabout way of asking the question. So. If if we could go back in time and have seen these negative effects with cell phones, you know, I think we would make different decisions. If we could see the negative effects of social media, I think we'd make different decisions. To the best of our ability, you know, what are some of the pitfalls that you really early on can kind of already see on the horizon for the implementation of AI in ministry? Mm, gosh. Well, I, I think it's beyond just ministry. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the first things that comes to mind is... Uh, the loss of discovery and curiosity. Um, This this has has been true, I think, since probably like the mid-90s when the internet 
first began to sort of make its way into American homes at, at scale, at least. Obviously, the Internet in its mm -hmm. early stages was already forming and such. But, you know, when the World Wide Web sort of interconnected us and, and beyond that yeah. gave us immediate sort of at the touch of a keyboard access to what seemed like even at the time and now you know, exponentially more so this sort of endless well of information. Mm -hmm. I think one of the um, dangerous sort of destructive byproducts of that has been the, the rapid decline of um, our ability and aptitude as a society and as people uh, to live with not just curiosity, but um, the, the willingness and the longing and desire to go on the journey um, and the search for yeah. uh, whatever, you know, is out there, yeah. truth and beauty and goodness. Now we yeah. think much more so along the lines of just Google it, <laughs> you know, yeah. or um, just chat GPT it or whatever it is. And I can still uh, remember the first time I reached out to a buddy for help with something and he literally just texted me back, just Google it. Yeah. And yeah. for, you know, it's more efficient, but... I, I mean, I never text him questions Yeah, where you, you, you know what I'm saying? Like it was almost like he, he ended an element of, of relationship yeah. in favor of efficiency, which I feel like is the theme of, of the last 50 years. Right. And that's not all bad. I mean, in many ways, mm -hmm. you know, having Google is a very helpful, effective, certainly hyper efficient way to find information. Yeah. But it, this is one of the things I talk about in um, Analog Church, my first book. But, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, a simple way for me to remember it is that digital is is more than capable and it's probably the most effective tool we have um, or have ever had in human history. Uh, for information. So digital informs and we should use it mm. for information. That's great. Although there's all sorts of mm. other things we could say about misinformation and um, yeah. all of that. But yeah. uh, digital informs and that's wonderful. But um, only transformation only happens, I think, or it happens at least most effectively and dynamically in, um, in analog, you know, an embodied mm. You know, the theological word would be incarnational ways. Yeah. And the problem is, again, we are in the business of human formation, people, human beings being formed yeah. into a particular thing or, or person. Yeah. And the, the reality is we are whole humans. Like we are one, like heart, mind, body, soul. We are one um, unified whole. And if our digital... Uh, sort of tendencies are forming us and they are forming us into the sorts of people who believe that we can achieve desired results, get desired answers by typing a few words into a box that is going to really, unless we're very intentional about making the differentiations, mm -hmm. it's going to um, have detrimental effects on our aptitude and ability uh, to lean in in embodied yeah. ways to the to the analog incarnational physical uh, process of transformation you know and that's mm -hmm. problematic I think in the life of, of formation into Christ likeness so I want to double down on that because one of the concerns that I have is is and I I know that I'm, I'm susceptible to this like I'm reading the Bible and 
there's things that should be meditated upon. Yeah. That instead I Google. Yes. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I, and I think it took me a, a more than a decade of following Jesus to like pause and be like, wait, I don't, I don't think I'm actually supposed to know the answer to this in concrete. I think I'm supposed to dwell upon this. Yeah. I think that this is something that, you know, okay. But at least the Googling would take me down rabbit holes to connect me to organizations online that are, you know, right or wrong, trying to, to communicate elements of the gospel and, and, and Christian understanding often, right? That's how I got plugged into a lot of great resources over the years, Desiring God, Gospel Coalition, all the things, right? You know, they had articles answering the questions I was asking. What, what, what do we do? And, and I think it's probably already happening. Where, when people go to chat GPT and say, like, explain this verse to me or, you know, explain this biblical concept to me or tell me your understanding of what do we do when a pastor says, explain your understanding of Psalm 69 and that way I can use that. You get what I'm saying? Like when ChatGPT yeah. becomes the, the, the Bible commentary yeah. or some, and I, and I, I say that believing it's already happening in probably very small amounts right now. Yeah. But if, if that becomes as normalized as Googling, which is now literally a part of our language, um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned and I don't know what to do about it. If anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, uh, there's so much that's fascinating about the question you're asking and, you know, I'm very sort of novice and early in this whole journey yeah. as well, but um, I refuse to even open chat, chat GPT. I've never used it. So, I mean, I mean, I'm <laughs> yeah. just like really ignorant. I'm telling you, I'm yeah. going to go Amish here. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not a bad, it's not a bad call. Um, you know, just talking to people here who, uh, sort of their, their professional lives, you know, are immersed mm -hmm. in this sort of stuff. What all of them almost unanimously say is, um, and it's at the same time, it's, it's like kind of hopeful, but also frightening. What they all say is, yeah, all of this, you know, hubbub about chat GPT and, um, whatever else, you know, Dolly and mid journey and all, all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. All of this is so early. And what they say is that the way AI is working currently is um, it's just almost like it's going to look and feel Neanderthalic, you know, yeah. uh, very quickly, yeah. Yeah. Um, exponentially more, just exponentially quicker than what we saw with social media. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, my hope, I guess the hopeful thing is uh, that in the early stages, we, we begin to realize that um, it is it is it lacks the sort of capacity for human empathy. Now, it can it can sort of spew out to you words that are empathetic. But my mm -hmm. hope is that as embodied humans, we continue to maintain the ability to recognize that this is a mm -hmm. machine um, sort of, you know, feening as a living being speaking to us. Yeah. Uh, you know, my concern is that one of the reasons I say that is because, you know, I, I we've been we've been Googling for decades now and yeah. uh I think people still see Google for generally for what it is, right? That it's a, engine. it's a search engine. It's a, it's a machine that is pumping out data or information for us. 
Um, you know, obviously artificial intelligence is a different thing, you know? So yeah. it's like you said, it's generative. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it reacts and responds, but it's still pulling from the deep well that is just the internet and, and data mm-hmm. that is out there. You know, what happens when that changes a little bit? So, um, yeah, I, I don't think that there is any sort of real, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think that there's any sort of real effective antidote to that other than to make sure that people in, in our midst um, continue to live with, um, you know, uh, a sort of deep awareness of the unique richness that comes uh, to life when we live in actual communion with other embodied human beings. Mm -hmm. So what I mean is rather than react and, and try to tell our people AI is bad, AI is bad, AI is bad. I think maybe the most effective thing we could do is to just sort of have a taste and see type of invitation to embodied community. Um, that if, especially if the local church and Christian communities can create spaces of belonging where real people can show up in a real place in real time with other real people, and they can just consistently taste and see and experience the goodness of embodied reality, I think that's probably the best antidote to not falling into the trap of believing that digital uh, platforms and artificial intelligence can take the place of um, embodied Mm. real human interaction. Um, Yeah. And then getting back to the original question in terms of, you know, uh, meditation, um, literature that is what the bible is yeah. you know the bible is meditation literature it's not intended primarily to be um, understood the way you would understand a math equation it's intended to uh, be meditated upon and to be lived into um, scott mcknight has this wonderful line in his book blue parakeet he says mm-hmm. i'm paraphrasing him here but basically he says uh, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible is not intended to be read. The Bible intends to read you, you know, and yeah, that's um, beautiful. And I think as long as we can invite people to that, that the scriptures are not information primarily, but that they are transformative meditation literature that we are supposed to sort of sink deeply into and not just get answers for, um, then I think we have a chance, you know, moving forward. Well, I think the whole mindset you're talking about, and, and, and this is again, one of, one of the things that you talk about in analog church that I really enjoy was, was kind of what you're talking about with taste and see. It's less about talking against, in this case, AI, and it's more about genuinely offering something better, you know, like, and, and, there isn't anything better, in my opinion, than uh, Christ and his church and, and, and the sweetness that comes from just like being around uh, believers and being around yeah. the very broken, messy, ugly, but also beautiful, wonderful, like in the process of being sanctified body of Christ. And I actually think that's important. And I really don't want to pass that point by. I want to take a moment, meditate on it, honestly, that as church leaders, as myself and, and you in ministry, thinking about the individuals that we get to influence and shepherd and be a part of their spiritual journey and their walk in the kingdom of God, the focus is less about how can I use this next tool to do another thing, 
but it should be us taking a step back and just saying like, what can we be doing to continuously curate a culture that um, creates more space for the Holy Spirit and more space yeah. for one another to renew the very minds that are honestly not being renewed by the world, right? That are, yeah. are being dragged down by things, by whether it be old tech, old sins and temptations that have been around since human history, or the newest, latest, greatest thing, which is AI. It's an interesting thing. The small group that my wife and I lead at our church, the majority of the people, it's a young, it's a young families group. The majority of the couples, um, one or both spouses work in tech and, mm-hmm. um, four of them work at Apple. So, you know, when, oh when all of the public yeah. stuff, you know, presentation stuff was about to happen a, co- a few weeks ago or a month ago or something, um, they were just swamped <laughs> and I just, yeah. I remember how swamped they were. And then, uh, a few weeks ago, probably three, four weeks ago, we all, uh, rented this huge cabin up in the mountains and took our kids and there was like 25 of us up there in this giant Aww. sort of cabin. And, um, I remember how, you know, it was such a low tech few mm-hmm. days. Um, and these are the guys that make the stuff, you know, that, yeah. uh, is so pervasive and ubiquitous in our lives. And I just, I remember, um, sort of noticing how, uh, maybe easy is the wrong word, but just how naturally they, um, slid into a low tech, uh, mm-hmm. time because we were together and, it, you know, it's fascinating. It makes me think of like, you know, Steve Jobs, he, he, in several interviews talked about how he did not allow his children to use Apple products. And yeah. that's very public. You know, he actually, and he actually named it a couple of times in a couple of interviews that he was aware of the addictive potential of the stuff he was making. So he yeah. didn't let his own kids use the stuff he made, you know, which is Which so is telling. So, it's so interesting. It's like, yeah. you know, the CEO of Camel Cigarettes coming out and saying, I don't let my kids smoke my cigarettes. I was like, well, of course, you know, yeah, like, right? of course. And but we, you know, we give smartphones to 12 year olds and, uh, or, or and I do wonder their usage in a in a church gathering. Or, yeah. You know, you know right. what I'm saying? Like, it's not just yeah. the kids. It's also like. We're also curating these congregations. Yeah. You know, we don't have, you know, I don't know what y'all do in Silicon Valley, but we don't have like group smoke sessions, right? (laughs) Like, you know (laughs) what I mean? Like, we're still not promoting that behavior, even if you're not, you're obviously not kicking people out or anything, but you know what I'm saying? Like, we're not promoting these poor habits and things that are addictive in nature. Yeah, because they're formational, because they mm-hmm. form us into certain types of people on a number of levels. So, yep. yeah, I mean, I, I think big picture, that's that's what I would say. You know, we, we church leaders especially, but all followers of Jesus, I think, have to. And I know that's a strong thing to say. I very rarely say that about anything, you know, like yeah. you have to. But I, I have no problem saying that. We have to be thoughtful and theological and mindful and communal in our sort of um, engagement with digital technologies Mm. because they have such a couple of things. One, such formational power Mm -hmm. um, and such addictive um, qualities, you know, and 
it's it i mean it's unique in that way we have not had a technology quite like this i mean uh you think about television um certainly in an incredibly addictive sort of quality to it especially when it first came out um but even the tv you know in the mid-20th century when you know in the 40s and 50s when television sets sets made their way into basically every american home for decades and decades it was very communal yeah (laughs) like thursday and if it wasn't communal it was at least um consistent in the sense that if you you know in the 90s if you wanted to watch friends you had to show up at 8 p.m. on Thursday and turn the mm-hmm. TV to NBC or whatever. Mm-hmm. And typically it was done, you know, with you and a bunch of your friends and you get together yeah. and, or your or family. At least you and talked you, about it on Friday at work. Or you talked about it on Friday. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And then you yeah, kind of yeah. had the like, I got to watch it on Thursday because tomorrow at work, everyone's going to, you know, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but we are moving, you know, I mean, young people don't watch television. They scroll YouTube which is a, a self, it's a curated, algorithmically curated experience. Nobody has the same exact experience on YouTube, yeah. you know? So um, that's forming us, <laughs> you know? It's, yeah. it's not an accident that uh, researchers like um, Jonathan Haidt and Gene Twenge and all the work mm-hmm. they've done in terms of, you know, there's that famous chart where they show uh, this tremendous spike in rates of depression, anxiety, yeah. and suicidal ideation amongst high school students and teenagers that spike. I mean, the chart is jarring. It like it literally, it's like kind of mm-hmm. steady, and then it spikes in 2012, and they note mm-hmm. that 2012 was several things. One, it was when smartphones made their way into the hands of teenagers, and two, mm-hmm. it was really the um, breaking open of um, social media's sort of expansion into mm-hmm. the cultural ethos, you know, where it became everywhere. And yeah. I, I know that's not coincidence. You know, it's not an accident. Yeah. We are more interconnected than ever before. And at the same time, we are lonelier and more depressed and more isolated and sadder than ever before. You know, um, yeah. W- one last thought I, I, I want to pitch what I'm, I've been thinking about for a minute and I want to get your, your wisdom and thoughts on it. One of the things I'm concerned about is uh, church content creation mm. using, you know, uh, writing the worship songs, uh, yeah. writing the sermons. And, you know, we're familiar with the burnout rates with pastors, the number of, of spiritual leaders who feel like imposters, right? Like who are struggling And I'm concerned, what do you do when you take someone who's so exhausted that they see chat GPT as the way to, to get, get through this upcoming Sunday. And like Mm -hmm. they, they're not twirling their maniacal mustache. They have really good intentions. They, they're, they're going to edit it, you know, they're going to make sure it's theologically sound. And then Sunday finishes and they have this moment where they know I'm really a fraud is how they're going to feel and internalize it. And I'm not saying they are, I don't think they are. Um, I, I, I could make an argument that's still a tool and they're the editor or whatever, but, but I'm concerned with how that's going to play into ministry leaders and, and content creation. And would you suggest, well, uh, let me just get your, your thoughts on that. So when I say that, what comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think my great fear with it is again, that we are so early, you know, so 
there there are several stories you mentioned one the anglican church in england and um mm-hmm. you know there's that story of the jewish rabbi in uh in new york i think in the hamptons um mm-hmm. who a year ago maybe um this past january i think maybe so six seven months ago something like that um uh <laughs> preached um an entire uh sermon that was written by ChatGPT, yeah, and he, he told his synagogue that he didn't hide it from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was, you know, a teaching on vulnerability or authenticity or something, which is interesting. And uh, and he did that sort of as a lesson, and um, the desired result was sort of not achieved. At the end of the teaching the congregation applauded you know they were so moved yeah. by these words that were not his own and even though he said i didn't write this you know a, a computer wrote this a, a machine wrote this um mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting to me i you know I, i've seen online some versions of hey you know on twitter or whatever chat gpt wrote the sermon i've seen some of those manuscripts and it's it's so bad at this point you know like yeah. it's not it's not very good yeah the problem is it again it's self-learning it's a self-learning machine so it's going to yeah. get better and better so In what year, happens they'll be writing the best sermons yeah exactly so what happens when you know you can type in hey write a sermon on you know the Beatitudes in the voice of whoever fill in the blank with your favorite preacher. Mm -hmm. And because Mm -hmm. there's so much content from that preacher online, the database essentially that artificial intelligence can pull from, it's going to nail it. It's going to sound just like that. And then you can just read the manuscript and nail it and everyone will be like, oh my gosh, Andy Stanley. Yeah. You're the new (laughs) Tim Keller or whatever. Um, That's problematic on a number of levels, but you know, as a way of encouragement, I would, encourage preachers and pastors and church leaders who maybe are listening and thinking about this. Um, what the machine could never ever do is know your people the way you can. And I really do believe that's where, um, you know, the most important part of the sermon lies is it's in the relationship between the pastor and his, his or her people. Mm. And, um, you know, Dallas Willard, uh, once, said this wonderful line. He said that the most important thing that happens in a sermon is the moment between the time the words leave the preacher's mouth and enter the listener's ear. And what he meant by that was a couple of things, I think. One, it is the spirit of God that infuses the words on its journey from being spoken to being heard. That's Mm. the power of a sermon. So it's Mm. not... Even if ChatGPT could write the magnum opus of all sermons for you, sure, meaning sure. The, the words are beautiful and profound yep. and rich and whatever, um, the machine cannot do uh, what only the Spirit of God can do, which is infuse the words with utter power to change and transform a life. And that is the goal of preaching. So if the goal of preaching is to impress an audience, then I would say ChatGPT away. Just have it yeah. write the most impressive sermon possible and there you go goal achieved but i would also say if the goal of your preaching is to impress a, a, an audience then you shouldn't be preaching <laughs> you know so praise god yeah um the other thing i would say is uh you know thomas long he wrote this book i think it's called the art of preaching or just maybe preaching it's an older book from like mm-hmm. the 80s 
but it, it had a profound impact on me. One of the things I'm paraphrasing him here, but Thomas Long, one of the things he says in that book about preaching is that um, he says that the sermon uh, is not the content that the preacher writes. The sermon is actually the entire interaction between preacher and congregation. The sermon mm. is something that um, the speaker and the listener sort of create and offer up together in worship to God. And um, as such, that, that act of worship, of speaking and listening and receiving, is what forms all of us more and more into the mm. people God's called us to be. And I know that f that feels a little bit strange and maybe ethereal or something, but um, I think it's true. And uh, yeah. it's true in the sense that when you are speaking the words and, and for congregants, when we are hearing the words, it's not just an exchange of content or information, mm -hmm. because if that's really what preaching comes down to, then why listen to me? When yep. you have at the touch of your fingertips sermons that at least objectively are of immense, immensely greater yeah. quality than anything I could give you. I mean, you can yeah. go listen to Keller or Andy Stanley or McManus or mm -hmm. John Tyson or whoever. You can do that from your phone. So why mm -hmm. show up with a group of people, sit in a room and listen to some guy like me who's like kind of a hack and just let him talk? <laughs> like what? What's the point of that? You can just yeah. listen to the best of the best. But I think one of the reasons people show up week after week is because intuitively we understand quality certainly matters. You know, a preacher shouldn't just mm -hmm. wake up, roll out of bed on a Sunday morning and say, hmm, what should yeah. I say today? You know, of course, we're going to prepare and invite God by his spirit to join us in that work and to lead us in that work. But um, <clears throat> I think people also intuitively understand it's not just information exchange. It's not just content consumption. The sermon is something much more. It's it's a it's a communal exchange happening mm. between us as a church family, speaking um, at the very unique intersection of our community, our city, our neighborhood, our town, our church, and yeah. what God the the big broad story God is unfolding in the world, and the truth of Scripture, the timeless truth of Scripture. So, you know. I, I think that there's a lot of hope ahead. I think that, yeah. that things like artificial intelligence and new technologies in general, um, they have a way of forcing all people, but especially forcing the church and church leaders and pastors. Mm -hmm. um, it, it forces us to consider deeply why it is we're doing what we're doing and, uh, and how to lean into those things more effectively. And I'm hopeful that that'll be the case in the years to come. Jay, I... I am really blessed that you joined me today. And I didn't expect this, but I, I think it's so fitting that as I, I really am a little bit anxious about AI and about where things are going. But even just what you just said about preaching and that it's not about content, it's about the, the body of Christ. It's about the community that's coming to worship together. There is a sense of peace that like, even though I do think we'll see ways in which our brothers, sisters in Christ, and maybe me, uh, definitely me, uh, will go astray <laughs> with some of this stuff in the, in the next few years, we can come back to the ecclesiastical community locally and meet together uh, in person. And honestly, when, you know, I have the amazing opportunity to, to lead a small home church at a mm -hmm. Mimois home, 
you know, when they come in on Sunday night and it's us and we're together, none of this stuff really matters. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Amen to that. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today and praying for blessings for you and your church community out over there in Silicon Valley. Yeah, thank you so much, Phil, for having me. It was a joy. Thank you so much for tuning in to my conversation today with Pastor Jay Kim. I pray that conversation was a blessing to you. In the show notes, you'll find links to uh, Pastor Jay's book, Analog Church, which I really recommend, especially if you're a ministry leader, and Analog Christian, which I recommend for everyone. They're fantastic books to figure out how to navigate following Jesus in the digital age. Also, if you haven't already, go to livingroomdisciple.com to find out more about us and how you can support us financially on Patreon. Thank you so much to Anissa Live for all the amazing production work, to Eric Church for getting this podcast out there, and to Daniel Ramirez for composing all the music. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Living Room Disciple Podcast, where discipleship finds a home.